Starting a new series called Unnamed, my message for this morning is called The Woman He Knew So Well. Now, it's pretty common that when we want to look at heroes within the Christian faith, we look to those that have made a name for themselves. There are kings, there are military leaders, there are prophets, there are extraordinary people whose names are listed within the pages of the Bible. We read stories of their heroic deeds, their profound faith, and their inspiring journeys. And you might find yourself reading Hebrews chapter 11, where we learn of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and a bunch of others. And there's no question that despite their mistakes, despite their shortcomings, they still lived lives that have inspired our faith today. In fact, the subheading in my Bible, it's not part of the scripture, but it sort of encapsulates what it's about, lists that portion of scripture as heroes of the faith. Sorry, see, examples in faith. In other words, look to these guys as an example. Be like these guys. Base your faith off the way that these guys have lived their life. And while all of that is fine, and I'm not here to challenge any of that, I don't believe for one second that the big picture of God would have us looking at just a handful of inspiring people. In fact, we often draw a lot of inspiration and learn really valuable lessons from those that are not named, from those that are not considered admirable by the world's stand, standards. It's those who never sought recognition and fame. It's those that never wanted to be famous, but instead were just extraordinary people with ordinary stories, much like you and I. Most of us in this room will not become household names, and yet God is just as interested in using our lives for incredible purposes. When you think of mankind landing on the moon in July 1969, who do you think of? You probably think of Neil Armstrong. It's probably the only actual person you could name that was involved. He was the first person to step on the moon. One small step for man, one great leap for mankind. But then there was his companion in the mission, Buzz Aldrin. We don't hear his name as often, but he was the second man to land on the moon, to step on the moon. Now, amazing astronauts, no doubt. But do you realize that some of the most instrumental people in the success of that mission, many other missions, were a bunch of women? They were nicknamed the human computers. They would carry out advanced and complex mathematical equations by hand, and there's simply no way that we would have landed on the moon without them. I know some people don't even believe we've been to the moon. Discussion for another day. Let's just, for the sake of this, assume that they did. Amazing though, right? <laughs> There's more technology in our iPhone than there is in the rocket ship, but how cool. Now, many of these women were African-American, which unfortunately meant at that time would not have been elevated into higher positions of recognition. In fact, they were so good that many of the men began to distrust their actual computers because they believed their human computers were even better. There's a really cool movie about it called Hidden Figures, if you're interested in watching that. It's an extraordinary story of an ordinary group of women kind of ordinary, uh, massively unnamed for most part of history, I, I guess until the movie came out. And so we're starting this new series today called Unnamed because we want to dive deeper into the stories of those of whom we aren't given their names. They aren't listed in the Bible's Hall of Fame. They aren't household names, and yet they have powerful stories that we can learn from and be inspired by. Now, although Scripture doesn't record their names, they play significant and important roles in the lives of those around them and in the big picture story of God in their time. Their lives teach us that we don't live for fame or accolades, that we live for something bigger than recognition. And as followers of Jesus, we live for purpose, right? We live to serve, to honor, and to glorify God. Each unnamed person that we read about in the Bible teaches us lessons that we can apply to our life and faith. And so let's jump into it for today for part one. We're going to go to Luke chapter four, where we read of this really incredible interaction between Jesus and an unnamed person commonly known as the woman at the well. 
Now, I'm going to give you a brief version of the story, so we've got a bit of an overview before we go any further. Now, Jesus is traveling from Judea south towards Galilee, and he has to stop at Samaria along the way. Now, this in itself was quite unusual because it was not customary that Jews, which Jesus and his disciples were, to speak to and interact with Samarians, or obviously from Samaria. And so there was possibly a far more comfortable place that they could have stopped on their journey. But for whatever reason, the Bible says they had to stop there. It had been a long journey and they're pretty tired. So they stop off in a town called Sychar, which is near a plot of land that Jacob gave his son Joseph. And they stop off at Jacob's well around noontime. The sun was beating down. It's hot. They're tired from their journey. It's exhausting. They're hungry. They're thirsty. And so they're at the well, and the disciples decide to pop off into town to get some food while Jesus remains back at the well. Well, it isn't long before a woman comes to draw water from that well, and Jesus asks her for a drink. And this interesting encounter takes place where she's taken back and shocked that this Jewish guy is even speaking to her. She's like, um, why are you asking me for a drink? And he responds, he says, if only you knew the gift that God had for you and who it was you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now, she doesn't quite understand. To be honest, I don't think I would have understood either. She's like, but you don't have a bucket and you don't understand how deep this well is. And besides, why are you even offering me this living water? Like, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob that gave us this well? And Jesus responds and he kind of like indirectly answers her question with a, yeah, I kind of am. He says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Okay, if I was this woman, I would be like, what the heck is going on? This random dude has come. He shouldn't be speaking to me. He's speaking to me. He promises to give me water. I'm like, he doesn't have a bucket. He doesn't understand how deep this well is. Like, this crazy bucketless Jewish man is talking to me. He must have heat stroke. Like, I clearly know how to get water. I've come to the well. I have my pot and he's trying to offer me water and he's got no way of doing it. I'll be like, this guy is crazy. And yet she's so desperate and thirsty that even though it doesn't make sense to her, she's like, there's no possible way this guy can actually get water. She still responds and says, yes, give me the water. She's so desperate and thirsty that even though it doesn't make sense, she's like, yes, give me this living water so I'll never be thirsty again. And so this interesting interaction continues. Jesus says to the woman, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus essentially says, yeah, I know. I was just wanting to see if you would tell me the truth. Turns out you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with right now isn't even your husband. Right? This gets real awkward. Like he's calling her out. The woman's taken back. She's like, how the heck does this guy know everything about me? She thinks he's a prophet. How can he know all these details about my life? She goes on to say, and they're having this conversation. She's like saying to Jesus, she's like, one day the Messiah is going to come and you Jews do it one way and us Samaritans, we do it a different way. But don't worry, the Messiah is going to come and explain it all. And Jesus is like, ta-da, it's me. Jesus is like, I'm the guy that you're talking about that's going to come. He's like, I am the Messiah. And the woman was like, what? And so she dropped her, her jar at the side of the well and she runs all the way back to the village to tell everyone there about this encounter. And when she's there, she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. <laughs> Peter's like, I knew I could smell corn chips in the desert. He, he's got sneaky snacks. <laughs> the woman runs to the village. She says, this guy, he must be the Messiah. He told me everything I ever did. There's something amazing about him. And they all come streaming to the well to see Jesus. Now that's the streamlined version of the story. But there's so much in there. Not only is this woman unnamed, but she's a woman. She's had five husbands. 
She's living with a guy that is not her husband. So society would have shunned her, absolutely. By social standards, she would have been considered so low. And yet this is one of the most phenomenal encounters I read in the Bible. Theologian William Barclay, he said this. He said, there are two revelations in Christianity. The revelation of God and the revelation of ourselves. We never really see ourselves until we see ourselves in the presence of Christ. And then we are appalled at the sight. There is another way of putting it. Christianity begins with a sense of sin. It begins with the sudden realization that life as we are living it will not do. We awake to ourselves and we awake to our need of God. Now, you may not be cast out from society. You probably haven't churned through five different husbands, but all of us at some point experience a sense of shame. Shame over our mistakes, shame over our shortcomings, shame over what we've failed to do or what we have done when we know that we shouldn't have, shame that we simply don't measure up. And the problem with shame is that it corrupts and perverts the view that we have of ourselves. It distracts us away from the grace of God and it robs us of living life to the full. The example of the woman at the well shows us that shame will disconnect us from community. Did you notice how the woman came to collect water at noontime when the sun was beating down? Nobody did that. All of the women would go together in the morning when it was cooler to go and collect water from the well. But she collected water at noontime because she was so filled with shame, she didn't want to be around the other woman. She felt, felt like she couldn't fit, fit in. She felt unworthy to collect water when the other women were con- collecting water. And shame will cause us to become isolated and disconnected like that. And this is why this encounter with Jesus is so eye-opening for you and I. She's unnamed, but this woman's response shows us what can happen when we have an encounter with Jesus. What can happen when we have a moment in His presence? What can happen when we humble ourselves before Him? This woman had an encounter with Jesus and a few things happened. And I want to share a few of those things with us this morning. The first thing that I think is relevant for us is this. An encounter with Jesus disarms our sense of shame. You know, when Jesus asked the woman to go and get her husband, which turns out was a leading question, He knew she didn't have a husband at the time. He knew she had been through five husbands. He wasn't trying to heap shame on top of her. He wasn't trying to have her feel shamed in that moment. He was trying to help her see that Jesus knew her, that he saw her and that he knew her. They'd never actually met, but God knows all the details of her life. The woman claimed, remember, when she ran back to the village, that this guy told me everything that I ever did. She is an unnamed woman, and yet Jesus has all the time in the world for her. You may feel unnamed. You may feel unseen, but God has all the time in the world for you. His unbelievable grace offers to this woman this living water that bubbles up like a fresh spring within her, even though he knows of all her mess. This bubbling spring is a reference to salvation and brand new life. See, sometimes we think, man, if God knew about all my mess, he wouldn't want to come anywhere near me. God does know about all of your mess, and it's because of it that he wants to come near you. Jesus asked her to reveal what's going on, reveal details of her life, and he's so glad that she does. She was willing to humble herself before him. She didn't realize it at the time, but she was just being real, raw, and honest before God himself. Remember how the woman came at noontime to collect water because no one else was collecting water at that time? It's because it was too shameful to be around others. But the craziest thing happens when she has an encounter with Jesus. She runs back to the village to interact with and speak to as many people as possible. These are the same people she just previously felt unworthy to be around. What separated her didn't matter anymore. What made her different didn't matter anymore. She is emboldened to turn up and interact with her community again. And time with Jesus, it squashed her shame and it placed boldness and excitement in her heart. Not only had he transformed her life, 
But she was so moved by the encounter that she wanted other people to meet Jesus as well. You know, there are some people in this room, you've allowed shame to keep you disconnected, but I'll let you know it's time to run back to community. It's time to run back to the place that maybe you felt a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus wants to melt shame off of your life. Shame will have you believe the lie that Jesus has cast you out to, that he doesn't want you close to him and that you're too far gone for transformation. But it is simply not true. Romans 8 verse 1 to 2 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Now she didn't run back to the village being all like, I have found the Messiah, right? She wasn't like, look what I have done. She didn't run back to the village going, guys, 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 listen, listen, listen. Now, I know you hate me and you think I'm scum, but hear me out. Um, You're going to think I'm really impressive in just a moment. I found the Messiah. It was not about elevating herself. It was not about promoting herself. It wasn't about getting credit for her experience, but her heart was to point more people towards Jesus. And she reflects on her own condition. They knew about it already, but she reflects on her own condition, all in a hope to, to, to highlight the glorious grace of Christ. And I've got to be real. I've seen it hundreds of times before. Shame has kept people from turning up to their small group. Shame has kept people from gathering together like this for church. Shame has kept people, although you might be in church, from coming forward to have someone pray for you after the service, to believe for God's best in your life. Shame has created distance and isolation in people's lives. But shame is not from God. Shame is the lie that you've messed up and there's no way back. But Jesus is your way back. The grace of God is your way back. Your way back is pushing into an encounter with God so that the shame would melt away. And I want to prophesy over your life this morning that the disconnection that has come about by the shame that you've experienced, it ends today. You are seen, you are known, and by the grace of God, you are worthy and you are enough. Man, if anyone should have been disqualified from having a moment in God's presence, it was that woman, right? The woman that just... Broke all of the rules, lived life on her own terms, hadn't considered God at all. If anyone should have been disqualified and shunned, it was her. And yet, how did Jesus respond? He just spent time with her. He was close to her and he spoke life over her. And I believe God wants to do that to some people this morning. It disarms our sense of shame. And secondly, an encounter with Jesus creates a hunger for his presence. There's a really important detail in the story that you may not have noticed. In verse 28, it says, The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone. You know, without that water jar, she couldn't transport water back to her family. Without that water jar, she was going the right way to being single again because she wouldn't have been able to provide water as her, not husband, as the guy she was living with was expecting. It was expectation as the woman that they would provide water back to the family. That water jar was part of her livelihood. So why would she leave it at the well when she ran back to tell people in the village? She had likely never once in her life walked the return journey without holding that jar or perhaps resting it on her head. Maybe it's because she knew it was heavy and she could run faster without it. And the message of Jesus was so urgent, it was worth going as fast as possible. Reminds me that sharing the gospel will sometimes cost us something. But it's probably fair to assume that she had every intention of returning back to Jesus. She was coming back. She had this encounter with the Messiah. She knew she had to go and tell people about Jesus, but she had every intention of returning and she knew that she would return soon. This is a beautiful picture of how you and I can appropriately respond to an encounter with God. She had time in His presence and that birthed in her a hunger to return to that place. We shouldn't be living off yesterday's miracles. 
yesterday's breakthrough, yesterday's encounter. Look, the things that God has done is amazing. I'm not saying we forget that. Absolutely not. They are pillars in our life. They stir our faith and they remind us of what God has done and they give faith to us that He will do again in the future what we've seen Him do in the past, if not greater than that. But we were always meant to return regularly. In fact, I was having a conversation with one of the other lead pastors from one of the other campuses just the other day and we were saying how sad it is when we see people coming into church because they so desperately need something, they get the something they were after, and then you never see them again. It's like they turn up, they're needing healing, or they're needing a breakthrough, or they're just desperate for a trusted friend, and they stay for a little season, and then they believe the lie that from there they're good to go. I've just come to get what I wanted to get, and then I'm out of here. You know, a relationship with God could probably better be summed up with the phrase, little and often, rather than big and desperate. Always, constant, back to God, back to God, back to God, little and often, rather than big and desperate. You know, we shouldn't be treating God like this ambulance that picks us up and puts us back together when everything goes pear-shaped. Now, He does that. God is good. God is gracious. He does that. Jesus did that for this woman. But notice the woman, after being transformed and filled with living water, she didn't go back to the village going, I've got what I've came for. There's no need to go back. I'll never be thirsty again. But she had every intention of still going back to Jesus. The woman turned up to the well probably expecting to fill her jar as she usually does. She would have taken it back to her family. They would have all drunk it, and she probably would return every day. But I find it fascinating that she returns back not with a filled jar of temporary sustenance, but she's filled herself with living water, and she goes back and can have a massive impact on her community. She shares about Jesus in such a compelling way to the village that they're willing to look past her mistakes, past the shame, past the fact that they would usually not listen to a single word that this woman had to say, except the gospel was so powerful that it's even effective when imperfect people share it. You realize that? That there's not one perfect person in this room, except Jesus, he's here present. I mean, yeah, I get it. Like, but you and I aren't perfect. I don't want to encourage you. You can share the gospel. Firstly, commit yourself to learning it, right? So you can articulate it in a simple way. It's, it's actually relatively simple. But even as an imperfect person, you can just passionately say, hey, look, this is how my life was. I met with Jesus. This is what he's done in my life. And people will come streaming to see that Jesus. Being touched daily by the presence of God not only lifts your eyes and fills your heart with hope, but it begins to change the hearts and the perceptions and perspectives of those around you too. So if we're going to be practical, what does it look like for us? It means... No matter how many sermons you've heard, and I know some of you have heard more sermons than I've had hot dinners, it's turning up every Sunday with an expectation that God's going to speak something fresh to me today. You haven't heard it all before, and there's still so much growth that God wants to take you through. It means softening your heart to what God wants to say and humbling yourself before Him. It means dropping the pride. And at the end of the service, when we say, we say it every week, and you know it because you're here. There's people down the front that would love to pray for you. Just drop the pride, right? Just come forward for prayer. Yep, I know. Maybe you've been a Christian for 40 years. Maybe you've got a master's in theology. But God still wants to touch your life. And if you actually believe that the prayer of a righteous person achieves great results, if you actually believe that the laying on of hands brings healing, then position yourself for breakthrough and come forward. Look, you think the woman ran fast back to the village to share the news? I bet she ran even faster on her way back to Jesus. Can you imagine the excitement after she shared the news to be like, I'm going to be the first one back to Jesus because firstly, I need to get my water jar. <laughs> and secondly, I want to go back to see the man that changed my life. It also means getting into God's Word regularly. And as you're reading the Bible and you come across a story that you're really familiar with, don't skim it. Don't, oh, yeah, 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 I know that one. You know, oh, like, 
Jesus feeds the 5,000. Yeah, I know all there is to know about that one. Oh, Moses and the burning bush. Yeah, I know. Moses, Moses, take off your sandals. It's holy ground. Like, I've read that one a thousand times. Don't read for stories. Read for revelation. Stop trying to just fill your head and instead open your heart and say, it's the same story, but what different thing does God want to say to me through this? The woman wasn't interested in returning back to the well. She was returning back to Jesus. Sure, she would have eventually made her way back. She would have collected her water jar. She would have probably continued her daily routine. But there's no way she would have dropped her water jar if it wasn't that exciting. Don't just tick a box and go through daily routines, but run back to the place of encounter regularly. Keys, you can join me. It'll be awesome. While Jesus is speaking to this woman, and he's telling her about this fresh bubbling water that he gives, this overflowing life that leads to eternity, that will satisfy her soul once and for all. He's not doing it to save her a daily trip to the well. It's clear that he's not talking about a different brand of water that he's going to give the woman. He doesn't even have a bucket. There's no way to actually get water. He's talking about something that would satisfy her soul. And he's talking to her about this because he knew that she had had five husbands. He knew of the shame that she had carried. He knew of all of the efforts she had gone to to satisfy her own soul. And it's easy to judge this woman, right? Like, this woman. But we do stuff like that in a different way so often. Might not be five husbands, but for some, maybe it's five back-to-back toxic relationships. Maybe it's the hours we spend on social media scrolling, comparing ourselves to others in an unhealthy way. Maybe it's that relentless pursuit in your career to make it big, to impress the managers, to earn the big income, to get your name on the door of the corner office. Jesus is desperate for this woman to know, and He's desperate for you and I to know today that while the things of this world will satisfy for a moment, you'll always be thirsty again. It will never quite do. It's just never long-lasting. But to have a real encounter with Jesus to ask Him into your life, to experiencing the overflowing life that He offers, that's what your soul has been thirsty for this whole time. The woman is confronted in the most uncomfortable way, but her humble response changes her life and her eternity forever. And in fact, her response leads to many other people encountering Jesus. She's been living her whole life on her own terms, doing her thing, going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, hoping it would satisfy, hoping it would fill the hole when it clearly hasn't. But when she has this moment with Jesus, when she realizes that Jesus saw her and He knew her, and that He was the Messiah that had come for her salvation, she's left with no choice. She's compelled to run around and tell everyone about this Jesus that had transformed her life. And she pre-decided that she was going to return to the place of encounter. I want to read for you one more time that quote from that theologian, William Barclay. He said, there are two revelations in Christianity, the revelation of God and the revelation of ourselves. We never really see ourselves until we see ourselves in the presence of Christ. And then we are appalled at the sight. There is another way of putting it. Christianity begins with a sense of sin. It begins with a sudden realization that, we are, that life as we are living it will not do. We awake ourselves and we awake to our need of God. I'm about finished. But I really felt like in my preparation, in my prayer for this, God was saying that today we were going to pray for some people. 
and I don't just mean pray for you where you are. Um, and, and sorry to my ministry team who I didn't give a heads up, but um, you guys are all good. I actually feel like we're going to have some people come forward to be prayed for. Because there's two groups of people in, in the room in response to this message. Firstly, there's those who are like the woman at the well who meet Jesus for the first time. And you're like, how could he know everything about my life? How could he know of all of my mess and yet still offer me living water? That is the grace of God. The Bible says that his grace is sufficient. His grace is enough for you. Where you know that you feel short, God meets you in that place. You might say, Frosty, I feel real short. He's got lots of grace. And just like the woman of the well, who if anyone was going to be disqualified, it was her. You're probably not as bad as her as far as her society was concerned. And yet grace welcomes you home today. And I want to pray for anyone in the room who you felt like the woman of the well. You've been just going back and back, going from thing to thing to thing, but you're just fine. I'm just thirsty again and again and again, and nothing seems to satisfy. It's because you were designed for a relationship with Jesus. He made you. He loves you. He created you. He wants to be close to you. And I would love to pray for anyone in the room that would like to make that decision today. The Bible says that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, which means we can't measure up. And often that brings shame. But the Bible says we don't need to feel shame when we're in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. Maybe if we were a slave, we would, but we're a son or a daughter when we become a Christian. And we become a Christian simply by devoting our life to Jesus, asking Him into our world and committing ourselves to living a life that would honor Him. That's an important part. We don't just clip the free ticket to heaven and away we go. No, we actually need to repent, which means to turn from our way of life like the woman did and turn back to a brand new way of life 